0: Uh, Join me for a prayer. We'll face the crucifix. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother (coughs) of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. St. Joseph, Pray for us. Saint Pius the Tenth, Saint Pius the Fifth, in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <coughs> in our last conference last month, we began, as I mentioned, a series of the conferences that are titled In the Wake of Vatican II. And I had talked to you about um, uh, laying the groundwork of what our talk is going to be and some of the changes, especially in regard to the terminology that was already changing. I mentioned they changed the word transubstantiation to transignification in certain places. And I mentioned to you the liturgical commission that was set up by Pope Pius XII in Rome in 1948. And he appointed Father uh, Giuseppe Antonelli and this man here, Monsignor Anibali Bugnini, to head this commission. And these were the two men who would eventually compose the Notis Ordo Misumi. I talked about Father Antonelli, and I pick up today with Father Monsignor Anibali Bugnini. Here's a little background on Bugnini. He was born in 1912. He died in 1982. He was ordained a priest in 1936. He got his doctorate in sacred liturgy at the Angelicum University in Rome in 1938. And as a young priest, he worked as a parish priest, a pastor in the diocese of Rome for about 10 years. It was in 1947, however, that he became the editor of a new liturgical journal in Rome. And this liturgical journal was dedicated to the cause of a reform of the whole Catholic liturgy in the church. The whole Catholic liturgy, when we say that, we're not just talking about the Mass, We're also talking about sacramental rites. We're talking about, as well, the divine office is that prayer that the priest prays every day, the official prayer of the church. One year later, Pius XII appointed him secretary to the Committee for Liturgical Reform. Uh, You're wondering, how could this happen, right? If he's Editing a journal that is calling for a reform of the liturgy. Why would Pius XII do this? I cannot answer that question for you at this moment. In 1949, Bugnini began teaching a course in Catholic liturgy at the Pontifical University in Rome. And there he was slowly putting out to his students and future priests this idea of reforming the liturgy. He was personally invited by John the 23rd to attend Vatican II, and he was named by John the 23rd the secretary for the Pontifical Preparatory Commission on the Liturgy. Bunini was involved in all kinds of commissions and congregations during and after Vatican II. There was almost nothing that he did not have his hand on. He was consecrated a bishop by Paul VI in 1972. And in 1976, he was sent to Iran to be the pronuncio in the city of Tehran. Now, one may ask, why was he sent to Iran? Right? The speculation is he and Paul VI had a disagreement and a falling out. And since there's a lot of speculation about it, I'm just going to leave it there. Right? He came back to Rome in 1982. He died shortly after. But in 1948, both Bungini and Antonelli came together in a common cause to change the liturgy of the church, and in particular, the Mass. The Mass would be radically changed, but as I mentioned to you in the last conference, they couldn't just give you the Novus Ordo Mise in 1949. They had to test the waters, as it were. These changes thus began to be implemented in the 1950s. But I have to say uh, here that it certainly seems that it was Bugnini, more than Antonelli, who was the real power behind the chain. If you will, the whole modernist reform of the liturgy of the church is in that man's hands. But let us now look at some of these changes, these steps, I'll I'll call them, to the new order of mass and to the whole change in the sacramental rites in the new church as well as in the divine office or the official prayer that the priest prays. On November 22nd, 1950, Cardinal Achille Leonard, the primate of the bishops of France, formally petitioned the Holy See for permission to celebrate the Easter Vigil, that is Holy Saturday, on Saturday night rather than Saturday morning. Now you know here at St. Pius, we follow the traditional, everything traditional as it was before any liturgical changes. Holy Saturday ceremonies we celebrate in the morning. In the ancient church, however, I'm talking from the very dawn of Christianity up until about the 7th century, it is true the Easter vigil services took place in the evening, actually not even Holy Saturday evening. If you carefully study this, the Easter vigil services were held in the middle of the night through the wee hours of Easter Sunday morning, and they ended with the first Mass at at dawn on Easter Sunday. In the ancient church, there was no such thing as an Easter Vigil Mass that we have on Holy Saturday. The ceremonies of the lighting of the the uh, Paschal candle, the blessing of the new fire, the prophecies that was all done in the middle of the night. And it ended with the first mass Easter Sunday morning. The church then began to hold these Easter vigil services after the seventh century and on Saturday afternoon. And then finally, she was doing them on Saturday morning and ended the Lenten fast at noon as we do. So the church moved the ancient Easter vigil from the evening and throughout the night to the morning over 1,200 years ago, and for good reasons. But in 1950, Cardinal Leonhardt petitions the Vatican to what he called restore, and I put restore in quotation marks. Restore, he said, the nightly vigil. Now, he was not talking about staying up all night. What he was asking for was in the early evening of Holy Saturday, we could have a vigil. (coughs) Well, not only did Cardinal Leonard get permission from the Holy See to have Holy Saturday services on Saturday evening. He also got a revised Easter vigil ceremony. And these things may be small. They would have been almost, for the most part, not too noticeable by many of the laity. But these were very, very fundamental and serious changes. In 1950, in the Rite of Holy Saturday, for the first time was introduced what the church called optional rites, R-I-T-E-S, optional rites. For example, in in the Novus Ordo Mise, the new mass, the priest has what's called optional rites. For those of you who are familiar with the new Mass, you know they have Eucharistic prayer number one, Eucharistic prayer number two, Eucharistic prayer number three. And then you can even make your own one up in this day and age. And the priest has the optional right to choose whichever one he wants to use. And by the way, the Eucharistic prayer is equivalent to what we call the canon of the Mass. But this... Optional rites came in on Holy Saturday. The priest could choose to do certain things in the Holy Saturday ceremony. Some of the things, in other words, in the Holy Saturday ceremony became optional. He could choose to do it or not. It was his choice. Furthermore, for the first time, something else was introduced in 1950 for a Holy Saturday that was unheard of and the whole history of the church until this time. For the first time, the use of the vernacular language was introduced into the liturgy proper. And by the way, the first person in history to introduce the vernacular into the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass was a man named Archbishop Thomas Cranmer the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, who was responsible for taking the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass in England after Henry VIII died, and he's the one who turned it into a Protestant supper service. But he introduced the vernacular in the Mass first. The use of the vernacular in the public liturgy of the Church began in 1950. With little changes. And finally, the third thing to be introduced into the Vigil Easter Vigil service of Holy Saturday was this. For the first time, the rubrics directed the celebrant to, quote, sit down and listen to the prophecies, unquote. Sit down and listen. This goes with the use of the vernacular. Now, you've seen the Holy Saturday is a just a very beautiful ceremony. It's a very lengthy ceremony, but it's so beautiful. And you know, as you've seen the Holy Saturday ceremony, you know there's the blessing of the new fire, then there's the lighting of the Paschal candle, and then there's the reading of the 12 prophecies. What happened here in this 1950 change was the prophecies could now be read in English or the vernacular. And the priest himself did not have to read them. He could just go sit down while a lector read them. That is, even if it were a lay person donning a cassock and surplice and in the ceremonies, he could just read them in English. This is unprecedented. You know, for example, you've all seen a solemn high mass. Priest, deacon, subdeacon are the sacred ministers. And You know, during the solemn high mass, the subdeacon chants the epistle. But did you know that the celebrant reads the epistle silently? And the, the deacon chants the gospel. But the celebrant praised the gospel silently first because the rule was the celebrant is the one who's offering the sacrifice and all the ceremonies surrounding the sacrifice proper, that is the consecration, the celebrant said. And this whole idea that the celebrant could now sit down and not read something in the ceremony was unprecedented. And it was deliberated to remove him. It was a step, if you will, to take him away from being the sacrificing priest to being a president of the assembly who just sits down while somebody else does the talking. There is no doubt that these so-called little changes in Holy Saturday, 1950 were practical beginnings. These very important principles were laid down, the optional rites, the use of the vernacular, and the rubrics of the Missal now directing the celebrant to sit and listen. These were big changes. Interesting to note, 1954, Pope Pius XII issues what's called an allocution in which he warned priests around the whole world that they were not to change anything in the liturgy on their own authority. And why he issued that allocution in 1954 is because it came to his attention from various bishops around the world that they had problems in their diocese, that priests were starting to change things, omit things. And Pius XII issued an an allocution, which is simply a formal statement. And he warned priests they were not to make any changes Perhaps some priests who were modernists, not perhaps, some priests who were modernists, took what Pius XII, well, ultimately, it's his responsibility in 1950, they began to run with this, this idea of change, of change. And others, perhaps the novelty of it, we, uh, <clears throat> I've mentioned this gentleman, this man, this priest before to you, Monsignor Eugene Fowler. Monsignor Fowler was a priest of the Archdiocese of New York. He actually, when he retired, we took him in and took care of him in Round Top. And uh, Monsignor Fowler told me when he was a young priest at St. Peter and Paul Parish in the Bronx. This is the early 1950s. He said some of the priests would do the short form of the lavabo. The lavabo is the prayer the priest prays when he washes his fingers during the offertory. The lavabo, and it's taken from Psalm 25. And there's just an excerpt there that the priest reads. Monsignor Fowler told me that in the Archdiocese of New York, some of the priests would go over for the lavabo and they would say, lavabo, Uh, And they'd start the prayer. They'd say the first verse, wash their fingers, turn to the altar, say the Gloria Patri, and walk back to the altar and omit. They omitted the rest of the words. To shorten it, they said. And their excuse was, when I asked Monsignor, how could they do this? He said, well, they knew that saying that prayer during the Mass did not oblige under pain of mortal sin. So they thought they could just shorten the mass a little bit for the people. It was already. The priests were ripe. Many of the clergy were ripe for the changes of Vatican II, especially in the liturgy. Those were the changes of 1950. Now I bring you to 1955. It was in that year, one year after the allocution of Pius XII not to change things on your own accord, that Father Ani Bunini made an even bolder step in the so-called reform of the liturgy. It was in that year that Pius XII issued this decree, Cum Nostra Hak etate." And the gist of the decree was to simplify the rubrics. To simplify the rubrics, rubrics is very generally speaking, rules. Rubrics for how the priest certain things in the mass and rubrics for uh, the priest's recitation of the divine office, which I mentioned is the official prayer of the Catholic Church made up of psalms and readings from scripture. And if I could just, uh, if I could just read to you, is it warm in here? Is anybody warm? All right. okay. If I could just read to you just the opening words of this decree of Pius XII, which sets the scene, if you will, for the changes he's going to introduce in 1955. Whereas Priests today, he says, especially those who have the care of souls, are burdened with various new apostolic duties so that they can scarcely recite the divine office with the tranquility of mind which it requires. Some ordinaries, ordinaries are bishops of dioceses some ordinaries have earnestly petitioned the Holy See that some provision be graciously made to meet this difficulty. And at least the copious apparatus of the rubrics be reduced to a simpler form. So let me just stop there and just, in other words, what he's saying here, is we have been petitioned by bishops of various dioceses whose priests are overworked. And that because they're overworked in pastoral care, that is in running their parishes and caring for souls, we are asking that rubrics be introduced to shorten the mass and shorten the divine office, and in particular, shorten the divine office shorten the daily prayer that every priest is obliged to pray under pain of mortal sin. A prayer which numerous saints have said the church needs that prayer because the priest prays it for his people. And thus the decree then goes on to say, His Holiness Pope Pius XII in his pastoral care and solicitude entrusted the examination of this matter to a special commission of learned men who are charged with the restoration of the liturgy. In other words, Pius XII entrusted it to Antonelli and Bugnini. The commission, after a careful study of the entire subject, decided that the present rubrics must be reduced to be more convenient, but in such a way that they could be put into practice and keeping in the meantime all the liturgical books as they are until further provision is made. So, what are they saying here? We're going to shorten these rubrics. We're going to introduce some changes here. But we're not going to reprint new Roman missiles. You know, the Roman missiles are very large and expensive. We're not going to reprint those. You don't have to buy a whole new set of breviaries. We're not going to do that yet. Why? Because until further provision is made. In other words, we're going to make more changes. So don't reprint the books yet. We'll just introduce some simple rules here. Here's some of the changes. Now, these changes may not have struck the laity so much. They were aimed more at the priest. And remember, if the priest goes down, the people go down. If the priest is not holy, the priest will not, the people will not be good. And to take away the spiritual life of the priest, will affect the laity. And to take him away from prayer, which a priest must spend hours each day in prayer, to take him away from that prayer is the beginning of the destruction of souls. Remember, I think I told you, when Pope Pius X became the bishop of the Diocese of Mantua, Italy in 1884, the diocese was a wreck. It was a shambles. Not just the buildings and the material things of the church, the spiritual state of the diocese was a a disaster. When Pius X got in there, the first thing he knew he had to do was he had to reform the clergy. He had to get them, number one, they had to say their prayers every day. They had to become holy. So what were some of these little changes here? Well, first of all, a number of the vigil days such as the Vigil of All Saints, October 31st, and the Vigil Days commemorating the Apostles before the Feast of an Apostle, such as we celebrated just recently the Vigil of Saints Simon and Jude, the Apostles. These vigils were suppressed. And these vigils... Usually were accompanied by extra prayers in the divine office. Something we called praeches ferialis. A number of litanical-like prayers that the priest had to say in addition to the office. These were now gone. These were suppressed. And with the suppression of those vigil days, Bugnini swept away with one of the most ancient Practices of the church. And one of the most. The the vigil days before the feast of an apostle. Go all the way back to the ancient church. Another significant change to the liturgy. Was the reduction of the number of octaves. From 15 to 3. Like right now we're in the octave of all the saints. There's the octave of the Immaculate Conception. There's the octave day of. Of. Uh, uh, of Christmas of Easter, a, a number of those were were, were removed. Uh, a number of special prayers that the priest prayed during mass, such as the the what we call the suffrage of all the saints, or extra prayers to Our Lady that he would add to the Sunday the Sunday uh, mass, or the prayer against the persecutors of the church he would pray, these were all abolished. These extra prayers were all abolished to shorten the mass. And finally, this document, cum nostra hac etate, abolished the proper last gospel in the Mass. The proper last gospel, if you if you recall during the Mass, sometimes on a Sunday that commemorates, or that if we have like a big feast day on a Sunday, like say, for example, the Feast of Christ the King, at the end of Mass, the servers, if they're paying attention, (laughs) (laughs) the the servers, after the last blessing, get the Missal, which has been moved back to the Epistle side of the Mass, and they transfer it back to the Gospel side. Instead of reading the Gospel of of the last Gospel of St. John, The priest reads a gospel of the Sunday from the Missal. 1955, that was abolished. No more proper last gospels. I suppose some argued that these little changes, these very slight shortening of the mass and the divine office were a help to priests, So that he could spend more time saving souls. He could be more occupied in pastoral obligations. Well, my dear old friend, Monsignor Fowler, God rest his soul, told me this. He said, unfortunately, many of the priests spent too much time on the golf course. I'm not condemning, you know, our golf tournament thing. Pat Carroll, don't, (laughs) don't send me any, (laughs) you know. Many of the priests, though, spent their time off on the golf course. And many others, if the pastor gave them the day off, he says some of them didn't even offer daily mass. They just took off. They were gone for the day. We know our fallen human nature, and a priest as St. Paul says, is a man taken from among men. We are. We do not have angelic natures. We have a fallen human nature too. And we too have temptations to a life of ease. And the priests actually, as what we were seeing in the 1950s, far too many of them, not all of them, not all of them, far too many of them were taking their freed up time and using it for recreation. And as I said, speaking of this document, cum nostra haque etate, it provides for future changes. It has that statement in there, there's going to be more changes coming. These, for the most part, were some of the fundamental changes to the Missal. There were some to the divine office I'm not even going to mention to you, as you could not fully appreciate it. But if anything was shortened, the, miss- the office was shortened more than the Missal. One last change in 1955 here that was not included in Cum Nostra tate in these changes was this a new feast day was introduced it was introduced and in its it was introduced to replace an already existing feast day in the church and the feast day introduced if you have not already guessed was the feast of st joseph the worker 1955 that was introduced By the commission, of course, with the approval of Pius XII from the Sacred Congregation of Rites. And it replaced the Feast of the Solemnity of St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church. Now, if you know about the Feast of the Solemnity of St. Joseph... It was, a, it was a title, Patron of the Universal Church, that was given to St. Joseph in 1870 by Pope Pius IX. And he gave it to St. Joseph because that was the year that King Victor Emmanuel of the Italian province of Piedmont invaded Rome and took the papal states, that was the Pope's uh, land, away from him. And it was from that year that the popes were given the title prisoner of the Vatican. Pius IX, seeing the church oppressed on all sides, because not just in Rome, but all throughout so-called Catholic Europe, she was persecuted. He called on St. Joseph and made him the patron of the universal church to protect the church as he protected Jesus and Mary. This feast was replaced by St. Joseph the Worker, and it was to be celebrated on May the 1st. May 1st is the biggest holiday in communist countries. It was also the big holiday in Nazi Germany, because it is on the day May first, it's called the Workers' Day, that the worker is praised and held out. So what an insult, if you will, to the dignity of Saint Joseph. It was again, it was another step to tear down what was what was respectable, what was so what was with dignity had had a dignity about it and make it commonplace. So we can say that Bugnini struck oil or discovered gold in 1955. Because from this point of his point of view, by 1955, things were moving along rather splendidly. For more and more, priests were ripe for change. And as I told you, they were already putting their own changes in throughout the world in various places. And I personally believe, I don't think it's rash to say, Bugnini wanted that. He wanted priests to start making changes. But his work in 1955 did not stop there. Perhaps in a great certain sense, he felt a greater testing of the waters could be accomplished even in that year. And so it was that on November 16th, 1955, another decree was issued by the Sacred Congregation of Rites, And it was titled Maxima Redemptionis Nostre mysterium This decree is all about new changes to the rites of Holy Week. I mentioned to you 1950, there were changes to Holy Week. That was just Holy Saturday. This decree introduced what you know today as the new rite of Holy Week that is used by certain so-called traditional Catholic organizations, such as the Society of St. Pius X. Well, the decree begins by stating in so many words that the mystery of our Lord's passion, death, and resurrection uh, have been solemnly observed uh, for centuries by the Ancient ceremonies of Palm Sunday, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. We are then made to understand by this decree that in the ancient church, these ceremonies on Palm Sunday, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday were always done at the very same hour of the day at which the sacred mysteries took place. That's how they opened this decree, right? That the ceremonies of Holy Thursday, the ceremonies on Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and the ancient church were offered at a time of day at which the very mystery once took place. So in other words, Holy Thursday, the solemn mass of the Last Supper was offered in the evening when our Lord held the Last Supper. Good Friday, the service was from 12 to 3, not in the morning. You know we have the morning service of the Good Friday ceremonies, and then we have a traiore. Traiore is not necessarily a liturgical ceremony. The morning ceremonies... That's the liturgy. And of course, we've already talked about Holy Saturday. The decree goes on to say that with a detriment to the liturgy's meaning, it's actually critical here. It criticizes the practice of the the Church of the Middle Ages that moved the celebration of Holy Week to the times in which we were celebrating. And it says with a detriment to the liturgy's meaning and with a confusion between the gospel accounts and the liturgical representations referring to them, the solemn liturgy of the Easter Vigil especially, having been torn from its own place in the night hours, it has lost its clarity and its sense of words and symbols." So in other words, the decree states that by moving the celebration of Holy Thursday to the morning, Good Friday to the morning, Holy Saturday to the morning, we have lost clarity in the liturgy. We have lost a sense of its meaning and symbols. And furthermore, they said Holy Saturday has been invaded by a premature Easter joy. A premature, it says, Easter joy. Well, you may ask, why did the church change the time for the ceremonies? And the answer is, they were made for the good of the church and the faithful. So that more could attend. Because back then, in Catholic Europe of the Middle Ages, everybody went to Holy Thursday Mass in the morning. Everybody, work was closed. Everybody went. And furthermore, I would tell you this. When Pope St. Pius V reformed the Roman Missal and codified it, if he thought there was a problem with the celebration of the Easter ceremonies of Holy Saturday ceremonies and Holy Thursday in the morning, he would have changed it he certainly would have changed it. But he didn't. He left it as it was. Well, the decree goes on to say that churches are now empty during Holy Week. And we have to, in so many words, we have to fix this. We have to change things. And thus it goes on to say Basically, that we're going to restore the ancient rite of Holy Week by moving the ceremonies back to the times. Which means moving Holy Thursday from the evening back to the morning, Good Friday from the morning to the afternoon, and Holy Saturday had already been moved. But not in all places, actually. And, you know, it sounded good, but... Sounded good in a certain sense to them, but they did not just move the times. They made changes, big changes to the rite of Holy Week. Very big changes. Uh, For example, on Palm Sunday, uh, if you recall when the priest blesses the palms in the ceremonies of Palm Sunday, he says five orations five prayers. In the new rite of Holy Week, there's one. One prayer to bless the palms. In the ceremonies of Palm Sunday, there's what's called the Fore Mass, F-O-R-E-Mass. That's that little ceremony. The priest is dressed in a violet coat. He reads a gospel. Uh, and uh, he says the Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. It's like a little mass, if you will, a little ceremony that was abolished, that entirely disappeared in the new rite of Holy Week, as also did the chanting of the hymn Gloria laus at the door of the church. When you have the choir in one part of the building and the choir outside, they're singing that hymn to Christ the King, and then the crossbearer knocks on the door and it opens up. That was abolished. They got rid of that. And finally, they shortened the reading of St. Matthew's Passion on Palm Sunday. Now, uh, Maybe some of you were like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> they did shorten it. They cut out the entire account of the anointing of Christ at Bethany by St. Mary Magdalene and all the events of the Last Supper. As if that were not bad enough, then they went after the sacred triduum of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. The office of Tenebrae, that's the divine office, the sisters chant in the evenings, the office of Tenebrae practically disappeared. The Ore as well practically disappeared. They started having the ceremonies in the afternoon and the priest would give a sermon instead of a whole three hours dedicated. This is morning ceremonies and then there was the treore. Trayore practically went away. What was worse and even outrageous, if I can use that word, was the ancient and venerable rite of the mass of the priest sanctified on the Good Friday ceremonies was abolished. They got rid of the mass of the pre sanctified. You know what we mean by the mass of the priest sanctified? Priest doesn't, no one offers mass on Good Friday. The, pre, the mass is not offered on Good Friday. But it's called the mass of the pre sanctified because the priest consumes the sacred host that was consecrated on Holy Thursday and had been exposed all through the day and all through the night in the altar of the repose. That was abolished. It was replaced by a communion service for the people. For the first time, Catholics received Holy Communion on Good Friday, never before 1955, Did you receive Holy Communion on Good Friday unless you were dying and the priest would bring you Holy Viaticum, your last Holy Communion? That was a major change. I remember when I was in high school, and I don't think you would hear this today. I was in public high school and I remember our English teacher, her name was Mrs. Kaufman, and I remember, we were in school, holy, we were in school on Holy Thursday, and Good Friday we had no school. And I remember her saying, for all of those of you who are Catholic, and again this is a public school, for those of you who are Catholic, she said, you know, today's the last day you can receive the precious blood out of the chalice, because tomorrow you can only receive the host. And I remember we all just looked at each other, uh, the students, okay. You know, for me, it was like, well, why don't go there anyway? Right? I don't know about the rest of them. Right? But that's kind of the practice. was You can't, they 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 would not administer the so-called precious blood in the chalice because they started receiving under both kinds. We just haven't gotten to that yet. But she said on Good Friday, she said, you can't receive the precious blood, so you better, you if you weren't going to receive the precious blood before Easter, you got to go t- uh, today, tonight. Right? Uh, furthermore, another Good Friday change was what we, was, what was in the, what we call the litanical prayers. In the morning ceremonies of Good Friday, there's a series of prayers. The priest says, Flectamus Genua, Levate, that is, uh, bend your knees, arise. And then he reads a prayer, he offers a prayer. These litanical prayers go back to the ancient church, and they're called litanical prayers because it's like a litany. And the priest is praying like for the, he's praying for the idolaters, he's praying for schismatics, he's praying for the conversion of heretics. And there's a prayer prescribed for the perfidious Jews, it reads. And at that one prayer, that one prayer for the Jews, the church did not prescribe a genuflection. And she did not prescribe a genuflection Because, because the Jews genuflected in mockery to Christ. And the church, out of reverence for our divine Savior, would not genuflect for the Jews. It was changed in 1955. A genuflection was prescribed for the Jews. Holy Saturday changes that would have been noticeable the number of prophecies we read are 12 and you know that takes about an hour or so the reading of the prophecies that's where you got to get you get comfortable in the pew you got a flashlight because it's all dark in the church right because it represents the tomb and you read along with the priest they changed it from 12 to 4 only 4 prophecies they also cut out parts of the ceremony of the blessing of the new fire and the paschal candle And by the way, some of you may recall that there were ceremonies done in the Vigil of Pentecost that were like to Holy Saturday. Blessing of a fire. We don't do those ceremonies here. Blessing of a fire. Um, Those were completely abolished in 1955. So the question I want to end with here, is there a connection a real connection between the changes in the rites of Holy Week and the rites and and the new Mass. Is there a connection? Can we run a dotted lines from the changes of 1955 Holy Week to the Novus Ordo Missae of Paul Sixth 1969? And the answer is yes. There is a connection. And the proof is not because... I say there's a connection. The proof is in what the modernists themselves said. Father Dominic Chenu, I introduced him to you last year sometime, as one of the modernists, reformers, and one of the so-called experts at Vatican II. Father Dominic Chenu said that another a fellow theologian, Said in 1955, if we succeed in restoring, quote unquote, they use that word restoring and not destroying. If we succeed in restoring the Paschal Vigil in its original value, the liturgical movement will have triumphed. I give myself, give myself 10 years to do this. 1965, 10 years later, Father Dominic Chenu said, 10 years later, it's done. 10 years later. By 1965, it was, it was already over. The new mass was coming and the whole liturgical changes was coming. It was just a few more short years. They had triumphed. I'm going to stop there um, and I'm going to uh, if I may, uh dispense with our questions now because I I want to uh actually present something to you that I think is very important. Uh just a few comments. I want to make on the Amazon Synod, and I want to make these comments because there's just a few things. I'm not going to keep you too much longer. Is it very warm in here? Should we? Yeah, could you? I'm. I'm yeah. Anybody want to open up some windows? That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it'd be useful to, for you to know. I think you should be informed on this. And if you recall, last month, when I was here in October, I gave a sermon in which I compared the message of Our Lady of Fatima with a message of Francis, calling one the gospel of Christ and one was the gospel of Antichrist. This confirmed it. It was absolutely confirmed it. And I mentioned in particular, the only thing I said about the Amazon Synod was that it was going to be a further destruction of the Catholic faith and the hearts and minds of Catholic people and around the world. And it certainly, certainly is. I have here a summary of the final document of the Synod. And I just want to share some things with you there's a number of topics that are in here. I'm only going to read just a few things to you so you have an idea of what happened at this synod. First of, first of all, in the document, there's a title, Ecumenical and Inter-Religious Dialogue. Here's what the summary says. In this context... Both ecumenical and interreligious dialogue are very important. It is, quote, the indispensable path of the evangelization in Amazonia, unquote. On the one hand, it must be, it must take its starting point from the Word of God to initiate real paths of communion. Remember how the Vatican II documents read? Right. On the other hand with regard to interreligious dialogue the document encourages a greater knowledge of indigenous religions and cults so that Christians and non-Christians can act together in defense of their common home for this reason moments of encounter study and dialogue among the Amazonian churches and the followers of indigenous religions are proposed. You recall when we went through some of the documents of Vatican II, there was a document there about the church and non-Christian religions and how we're going to work with non-Christians, right? pagans, infidels. What this document is saying here, this part of it is saying here, is nothing new for us. We understand this. The so-called conservative people in the Novus Ordo are going crazy right now. But they don't understand modernism. What this is saying here now is the church, so-called, is going to work with pagans. We're going to study their pagan cultures. We're going to be familiar with this so we can work together in saving the environment in Amazonia. We can stop the ecological disaster that is upon us. Notice what a difference from the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church would put out a document saying, we have to save their souls. You must convert them from paganism, or they will go to hell for all eternity. This document doesn't even say a single word about converting them. It's all about studying them so we can work together in saving the earth. Okay. There's, there's so much to say about it. The next thing talks about the permanent diaconate, and in particular, regarding women. The diaconate, by the way, is a divinely instituted order. Deacon, priest, and episcopacy, bishops, are three degrees of the one sacrament of holy orders. Women cannot, by divine law, be ordained deacons. Listen to this. The Synod notes many consultations on the Amazon sought the permanent diaconate for women, a theme very much present during the work of the Synod at the Vatican. In other words, they've been requested to ordain women to the diaconate. The document expresses the desire of the Synod participants to to share their experiences and the reflections that emerged with the study commission on the diaconate of women. In other words, Francis in 2016 set up a commission to study whether women could be ordained deacons. Because as some nuns told him, some so-called nuns told him, there was this thing called deaconesses in the ancient church. And Francis said, hmm, we should study this to see if they were really deacons. I could tell you in three seconds, they weren't deacons. They were called deaconesses because the word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which means servant. The women were called deaconesses because they were servants. And what they did was during baptism, a practice in the ancient church was full immersion. That is taking a person and baptizing them, holding them and putting them into the water. Like the way John the Baptist baptized in the River Jordan. For modesty's sake, the priest did not handle. He could not take, obviously, a woman like that. He had the deaconesses who helped him. And he had his hand like on their shoulders. And the deaconesses supported the women. And Francis was saying, well, we better study this. Maybe they were deacons. Right? <laughs> so the Synod has said, we await, basically, the answer of the commission, whether women could be ordained deacons. And finally, what did pass, what the Synod passed, was a married priesthood. They struck down the law of priestly celibacy, For, it says it's only, it's only for the Amazon region. Men, married men who hold the esteem of the community and who have lived the permanent diaconate fruitfully can be ordained basically to the priesthood. That's the beginning. Now, Bishop Kelly, when I mentioned this to him, he did say to me and his his opinion was, perhaps they'll get a better quality of the clergy if they have a married priest right? he said that's the only bright side I can think of you know? uh, that's That's like the three three big things there. One last thing before I hit the real last thing is the last part of the document is a call for an Amazonian Rite of Mass. Now we have the Roman Rite of Mass that we have. You have a Ukrainian Catholic Rite of Mass. You have the Greek Catholic Rite of Mass. They're calling for an Amazonian Rite of Mass. A right, they said, that will complement the way in which Amazonian people take care of the territory and relate to its waters. Can anyone explain that to me? <laughs> right? And it will also be a mass, they said, in which the culture and uh the practices of the Amazonian region will be incorporated into the liturgy. That is what's coming. If that's not bad enough, right, Let's look at some things here. Pope prays for daring prudence during the Amazon Synod. Here's what a notable quote he made. Church must not try to tame indigenous peoples. By tame, he seems to mean in the practical order, convert. Convert and here is the most despicable perhaps perhaps part of the whole thing notice I have prayer ceremony in quotes this took place in the Vatican Gardens uh, just before the opening of the whole Amazon Synod October 4th, 2019 this thing was set up here with these idols these idols and Conservative, so-called uh, New Church articles and other articles, they called it a prayer ceremony to initiate the Amazon Synod. And the prayer ceremony began with what appears to be a pagan witch doctor. And they're all gathered around the circle and notice a Franciscan brother And they're all bowing down. I think that's called pachamama idols, pachamama. Right? Yes, yes, pachamama idols. <laughs> then look, they danced, they danced and sang around the idols. There are certain so-called, and I I, obviously I don't want to keep it too long. There are certain so-called bishops in the new church who were defending this, saying it was not a pagan ceremony, it was just a friendly thing, it was just a cultural thing. Those idols, those pachama idols, are actually represent. Pagan gods, Incas, the Inca Indians of old worshipped those idols. Pachama means goddess of fertility or mother earth as I say. Here. Vatican Gardens. It was in Rome, the Vatican guards. Remember we had the Buddha on the tabernacle in 1986 and Assisi, John Paul II, (laughs) he wasn't there. Francis was there for this. One writer says after they finished their little dance and song and dance routine, so to speak, around the idols and stuff, Francis got up and he prayed the Our Father. My question to Francis would be this, who are you talking to? are you really talking to the one true God? I don't think it's rash to suspect he does not believe in God. He does not. Here is the man who took the four idols out of the cathedral and threw them into the Tiber River. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Interesting about him, he, he actually is a native of Vienna, Austria, and he saw what was happening, he booked the flight, flew down to Rome, took a nap for a couple hours, then he and his friend went to the church, took the, just walked right in, because they took the, after the garden ceremony, the pagan ceremony there, they put him in the church on display. And I had a close-up picture for you. That was the blank screen. But I'm not going to show it to you because it's 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 a half-naked woman. That's what it is. Who's expecting a child? It's despicable. He saw this, flew down to Rome, took the statues out of the church while his friend taped them, threw them into the Tiber River you see him, he sets them up. He actually released the video. He sets them up and then he pushes them off one at a time. Then he got, went back to the airport, flew back to Vienna and went to work the next day. And he actually finally came out and said the reason why he did it because it was an attack on Christ the King. So there are some. And I, I have to tell you, I know I, we often bash the whole new church thing but there are, when all is said and done, there are some people who still have the faith. And I believe we're at a point right now, the more Francis pushes his neo-paganism, the more people are going to start to wake up. And they're going to, come, and we're going to get to that point where you're either going to be on God's side or not. That's where it's going. You recall my sermon last month. In October, I did say, perhaps this Amazon Synod is going to initiate a worship of Mother Earth. And unbeknownst to me at the time when I gave the sermon, they did a worship of Mother Earth at the Vatican. And I personally, if I were a man of speculation, and I always am, (laughs) I personally believe they're going to start setting up, sooner or later, temples to Mother Earth. Nature worship. In my own personal opinion, nature worship is going to be the religion of Antichrist. He is going to come in here because he's not going to go to this particular Christian religion or Judaism or Islam. He's going to have his own natural religion of worshiping the earth and then ultimately worshipping him and again that's my own speculation on it but i think this whole thing says an awful lot of what actually was what actually happened here is going to have a greater ripple effect now throughout the whole world let's stand for a prayer in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost amen the Apostles' Creed and thanksgiving for our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence is your come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Amen. Most Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, St. Saint Joseph, St. Saint Pius X, St. Pius V,